live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back to the final part of the Geniza series. This is part four. Rabbi Hirsch, you mentioned that we would be looking at a well-known personality, and you also mentioned that there are other Genizas, because we have seemed to cover the Cairo one in depth. Although there's so much more to cover, but yes to both of those. However, we will start with an interesting fact. The Geniza, as mentioned, has uh, hundreds of thousands of fragments, and there are thousands written in Arabic, which is to be expected, given that even Sforim were written in Arabic rather than Hebrew in the Middle East. But there are many documents of state, by which I mean written by the non-Jewish Muslim government, and they make up 4% of the whole, which is a very high percentage, given that obviously the Geniza is made for Jews. You don't have non-Jews popping in on the way back from work to uh, drop off worn-out letters from government ministers. <laughs> but like many other of the writings in the Geniza, it actually sheds light on Jewish life. Firstly, there was a strong link between the Jews who had communal leadership roles and Jews working in government. So it created a situation where Jews had access and were able to submit petitions to the court or caliphs, and they had court physicians or Jews working for ministers in the Fatimid dynasty, and the government replies to these Jews, and they are the ones preserved in the Geniza, In fact, during the first 70 years of Fatimid rule, uh, Jews petitioned high-ranking bureaucrats at least 19 times, which actually tells us that justice was often served for the Jews, uh, pretty much a rarity back then. Although, uh, I mean, obviously some of the documents in the Geniza are of no Jewish value. They got there because they were dumped in by the same person who's getting rid of his weekly parasha sheet. So while they're throwing that, they're throwing other pieces. I guess because it's so valuable, I just assumed that every piece of paper has a major story behind it. You know, I guess at some level it is possible, but no, there are going to be exceptions to the rules. However, another reason for these court documents is that they were often written on parchment, which is expensive and more importantly, is quite thick and can be reused. So the Jews scraped off the writing from the government and, uh, you know, voila, almost new parchment. In fact, in this week's mission in Pirkei Ovis, about writing on old parchment, it has very much a source in this Geniza. And in fact, nowadays, because of the use of infrared, you can actually often see what the underlying writing was 
and these documents are called palimpsests. They have two layers of text, one of which can be quite a bit older than the other. But there is another reason for so many Arabic state documents to be in the Geniza, and it's indicative of how Jews covered all the angles, so to speak, you know, narrowing the odds in their business affairs. So if a Jew had to go to court, they wanted to impress the judge or the minister. And one of the ways to do that is to make out that you mingle in government circles, you know, name dropping. But in those days, penmanship and the way you wrote a letter or a petition spoke volumes about who you were. You have Rabbi Huda ibn Tibon, who we mentioned translated the Rambam's works into Hebrew. He writes to his son that even if it takes a whole year to perfect a document, it's worth it. So what would these Jews in Egypt do? They'd get hold of real state documents and then write up their defense or, I don't know, petition for privileges by copying this style, this layout. So the judge sees it and thinks this guy must be well-connected, which is sort of a Yiddish cop at, uh, at work. Hmm. And that's why many of these Fatimid petitions in the Geniza are whole. They're not torn. They're not worn out. They served as a model for the art of writing documents, because I guess you couldn't download any on the on the Internet. Just staying ahead of the curve. Well, ahead of the court anyway. So back to what we promised last week. We'll start with the personality, Rabbi Huda Halevi, a Spanish poet, philosopher and physician. He's born 1075, 1086, around that time, and died probably in Eretz Yisrael in 1141 in what was then the Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem. So I guess we don't know where he's buried. We'll get there. Hmm. He is considered one of the greatest Hebrew poets ever in both religious and secular circles, and many of them are still said, sung, quoted to this day um, so he wrote Yom Shabbosen you know, on the, the one we sing on Shabbos often called uh, Yom Motza. he wrote one of the most powerful kinois uh, said on Tishabov called Tzion Halei Tishali in fact there is a street in Tel Aviv well really in Yaffa which is called Rehov Tziatli and most people haven't the faintest clue what that means because it isn't a name or a place. Tzihatli is actually an abbreviation of Tzion Halo Tishali, but it doesn't actually say it on the street. So, you know, it's just a word. Um, and even in secular quarters, he's heralded. The famous song, Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, has a line in the chorus, Halo Lekol Shirayach Ani Kinar. I thought you were going to sing there. Yeah, right. Disappointing. Uh, Well, we can do a podcast of song, you never know, but uh, don't want to get distracted, which translates as I am a harp to all your song. It comes directly from Rabbi Huda Levi's Tishrabov Kinnar, Ani Kinnar L'Shirayach. And he wrote hundreds of poems, poems about friendship, about honor, 60 poems about love, 50 poems, riddle poems. And in common with most Jewish intellectuals of Muslim Spain, 
He writes prose in Arabic and poetry in Hebrew. So, you know, nowadays poems are relegated to you know, exams in English, you know, A-levels. But in those days, they were more common. And when written by a person of note, they were very treasured. Now, Rabbi Huda Levi is, of course, also famous as the author of one of the greatest works of Jewish philosophy, the Kuzari. Although it might be slightly misleading to call it philosophy, because he was very much what you might call a traditionalist regarding Greek and especially Aristotelian philosophy. When it came to that divide in the Middle Ages that we spoke about during the series on Provence, he would have been opposed to the Rambam and later generations elevating the use of Greek wisdom within Torah. He referred to Greek intellect as only flowers and no fruit. You know, it looks pretty, but that's as far as it goes. And he makes clear reference to that in the concluding section of the Kuzari. I mean, but it does sound like philosophy. It does deal with the principles and foundations of Judaism. Absolutely. And in a very thorough manner, the series of essays and arguments, which are also easy to read. The Kuzari, I mean, it originates because it parallels the conversion of some of the Khazar nobility to Judaism, but it's divided into five essays, he calls them Mamarim, which is a dialogue between the pagan king of the Khazars and a Jew who is proving the essence of Judaism and its superiority, so to speak, over the Muslim and Christian religions. Now, Part three in particular contains a very strong defense of Tershabal Pair and how its existence is logically obvious. And in fact, it's much used in outreach circles to this day. And in the fifth part, the final part, as is quite well known, Rabbi Levi expresses his desire to emigrate to Eretz Yisrael, which we'll come back to. Now, although it is an absolutely classic work, he had doubts as to whether to publicize the Kuzari. And in a letter found in the Geniza, he explains to his friend Khalfon how he wrote the Kuzari in response to questions uh, that he was asked by a Karite philosopher in Christian Spain. But he questions the value of his safe. He calls it a, a trifle, although possibly at this stage he had not yet written the full five parts. And it seems that it's only due to the urging of his friend that he continues with it. You think it was because of his humility that he didn't want to publish it? Potentially. I mean, he might have felt there were better works available, and these could be works that we don't have nowadays, or just that he felt, you know, it's good enough to answer these questions, but, I mean, you couldn't print because this is pre the age, but to have it copied. But in his time already, he must have been appreciated as a substantial figure. Very much so. Completely so. I mean, he was a communal leader. He was a physician, as well as being a Talmud Chacham. Although little is known of his personal life, except the report in his poems that he had a daughter and that she had a son who's also named Judah. But the idea, for instance, that he was married to Rabbi Ibn Ezra does not that his daughter was married that's right his daughter was married yes to the Evan Ezra doesn't rest on any evidence although the two knew each other very well 
and Rabuda Levi wrote at least two poems addressed to the Evan Ezra. When did all this poem swapping stop? It's not really a... Well, it's a very Spanish thing. So oh, it originated in Spain. I can't say it originated there because you do find that earlier as well, but you find quite a number of Gedalim who also had this ability um, and they indulged in it, if that's the right word, mm. which it might not be. Was that influenced by the non-Jews in the area because of the art or the... Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it had an effect on them viewing literature in a certain way, although they were writing this poetry in Hebrew. Mm. But having spoken about what he wrote and what he said, beyond all of that, he is perhaps best known for his desire to spend his last days in Eretz Israel. And this is shortly after the Crusades. So he's moving to an incredibly hostile country, almost uninhabited. And he was going on his own. By then, depending on when he was born, he would have been in his 60s, possibly in his 70s. So you have a tremendous yearning for Eretz Yisrael, which comes through in his poetry, famous lines of, you know, Libi Mizrach, my heart is in the east, whereas I am Basof Marav. In fact, I was speaking to the Israeli ambassador about Rabbi Huda Levi at the JLE dinner a few months ago, and when I mentioned him, her immediate reaction was Libi Mizrach. It's a very well-known idea. She probably feels the same. <laughs> yes, I'm sure she does. In fact, I actually discussed the Geniza collection with her, which she didn't really know about, and I ended up giving her a tour in Cambridge a few months later. And now she listens to the podcast every week. Of uh, I have actually not asked her. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Ravihuda Levi writes that he has no other wish other than to move to Eretz Yisrael, which infers that Chalfon had, like others, tried to dissuade him from undertaking the journey as... It was a time of great political unrest. Does he explain why this was such at the forefront of his mind? So in the final part of the Kuzari, he talks about his devotion to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and how this will, so to speak, cement it or bring it out. And he gives up all his positions and he sails to Alexandria from Spain. He describes the journey in one of his poems that you know everyone's packed together and he describes the captain. It's a a light-hearted description of his journey, which is one of the uses of poetry in those days. And as a result of the Geniza, we know that he arrived in Egypt on September 8th, 1140, and he's there for about nine months. Who's this Salfan that you mentioned? Right. He is a friend and confidant of Rabbi Huda Halevi, Halfon ben Sanel, a businessman from Cairo. He's a great traveler. We find him in India, in Southern Arabia, in East Africa, in Spain, in Damascus, in Morocco. And he was influential, um, particularly influential in the community. And from letters written, we can see that he was known to people of importance. And Rabbi Levi composed a number of poems for him. In fact, they were possibly related to each other through marriage, but that's unclear. And he, as a friend, is the one, therefore, who wrote to try and dissuade him from going. Shortly before leaving for Eretz Yisrael, Rabbi Levi had a very unpleasant encounter. And once again, we only know this from a letter found in the Geniza. 
In Alexandria, there was an apostate called Ibn al-Basri, whose brother in Spain had given Rabbi Halevi a check for 30 gold pieces. And whether on the request of the brother or out of his own initiative, Rabbi Huda Halevi tries to persuade this renegade to come to Palestine with him because then it was in Christian hands and he could return to Judaism without danger. But the individual denounced Rabbi Huda Halevi to the police and he was made to appear before the head of the town, the governor and the head of the secret police. And had he not been well known and highly respected, his life would have been in jeopardy. In fact, what's interesting is that the anger of the mob was directed against this Ibn al-Basri for having given so much trouble to a distinguished guest. And this guy nearly ended up being killed. Wow. I need to ask you about that well-known story that he eventually reached the gates of Jerusalem only to be trampled to death by a crusade on horseback. Is that... The legend. (laughs) Is the legend (laughs) should have known. Okay, no, no, it could be. Um, But perhaps there's a bigger question, and that is, did he reach Eretz Yisrael at all? Generally, it's passed off as factual, but there's no written backing for it. What we do have is two letters, and they offer an insight, but not a complete picture. One is written, once again, to this friend, Halfon, and it tells us that he boarded a ship to go to Eretz Yisrael. He's held back on board for six days due to winds. All the ships sailing west to Spain, Sicily, Byzantium, they all sail, but his didn't because he's going the opposite direction. And there is good reason to assume that eventually that ship did leave because two poems were written by him at this exact time. One is about the west wind, which he asks to fight the east wind as it's stirring the sea. And we can assume that this is written during these long days when he's waiting finally to go to Eretz Yisrael. And there is a, a second shorter poem, much shorter, in which he expresses his thanks to the west wind for finally taking form. And we have a letter from a third party which tells us that he boarded the boat on the first day of Shavuos. It was a Wednesday in mid-May 1141, and he handed over these two poems. That much we're certain of. It's possible that the ship never reached Eretz Yisrael, except that in that case he would have died in Sivan, and his death is told to us as occurring in Av in August. And even small ships would have made the journey in 10 days. So the assumption is he reached his destination. And the balance of likelihood is that he made it potentially to Yerushalayim. And there is a letter written which reports his death in Cheshvan. It's written in October of that year of 1141. And he's referred to as the Tzaddik, the Chassid. And the language implies strongly that he died an unnatural death. But we don't actually have all the information, so we are waiting for more. But this is not a legend that I will discount. I just do not have enough information to tell you one (laughs) way or another. That makes a first, I think. But it's not my fault. (laughs) You haven't completely ruined my childhood yet. Right. Okay, thank you. I do have to ask before we end that I assumed when you said you would deal with one more personality, I did not think you were going to be talking about Rabiud Alevi. I thought you would be talking about the Rambam. I mean, anyone 
anyone who knows about the Geniza, the little I had heard of it before I went there, I, I wanted to see the Xaviad of the Rambam. So I'm just curious why you haven't mentioned him at all. You must have had a reason. The Rambam you don't discuss, you show. You need to be there. It's such <laughs> a wealth that you need to be taken through it. So are you going to be offering our listeners a tour of the Geniza, if they ask nicely? I can, yes. If we have 20 people, and in fact, what they would see, there would be none of the things that I've covered in this series. I would personally highly recommend a tour with Rabbi Hirsch, having had the merit to have one myself, and I found it fascinating. Not only do you see the Rambam's manuscript, Rebus of Caro, and you see a lot of the social documents which have been mentioned. How would this work? How would the, these lucky 20... Well, <laughs> people should email us, I guess as soon as possible, at podcasts at jle.org.uk. We would probably, thinking now, be talking a weekday. It has to be a weekday because the library isn't open over weekends. July, the three weeks, and you need five hours, including the drive there and back. Okay, so I guess the first lucky 20 will get the tour and possibly do another one with demand. You mentioned other Gnizas, so I just remembered, okay, not just well, Tribute Alevi. Yes, yes, we will end with this. So just like the discoveries in Egypt, there was always the hope that Europe would be a treasure trove of old writings because the percentage of Sforum written and printed in Europe was much higher than the Middle East. Although, as we mentioned, the European climate and the custom of burying manuscripts in the earth in cemeteries rather than in caves or, or in shuls, as well as frequent expulsions, meant that it was unlikely they would uncover anything. In addition, as a result of the Holocaust, even existing old libraries were destroyed or looted. But having said all that, in the past few decades, really, thousands of handwritten Hebrew fragments have been discovered in Europe, the vast majority in Italy, 13,000 there to date, and they are often referred to as the Italian Geniza, but they are actually the opposite of a Geniza. The Jews in Italy faced a number of expulsions in the 15th and 16th centuries. They were driven out of most of southern Italy in 1492 because the land was owned by Spain, so it becomes part of the Inquisition, and then driven out in the late 1500s. The church, once again, is responsible for evicting the Jews from many of the towns and cities and driving them into a select few, Rome, Ferrara, Venice, and that meant that many Jewish cemeteries were destroyed and there was theft of all these shawls, all this land. Thousands of Hebrew books were destroyed, but those written on parchment, although they were also torn apart, they weren't destroyed, they were desecrated because they are torn apart in order to be used as book binding material for volumes of accounts in Italian archives. I mean, it's done in other European countries too, but it was far more widespread in Italy. And they're very open about what they do. To this day, if you see many of them, the desecration can be seen on the outside binding of these books and financial ledgers. And therefore, rather than being a Geniza, which is a place where sacred writings are given their due sanctity, here they are deliberately de-sanctified. But since the purpose was to create covers and cases 
for books. When we refer to fragments from the Italian Geniza, really almost always we mean whole pages, whole folios. And these have been found from Gomorrah, from Chumash, from Ksubus, and unfortunately even from Sifre Torah, which, you know, might sound strange. Why didn't the Jews take the Sifre Torah with them? So on occasion they weren't allowed to. And sometimes if the Sifre Torah were apostle, were invalid, the last thing they could carry with them on the road when they were taking their lives with them was an invalid Sefer Torah. If they couldn't bury them in the cemetery anymore, they would have left them in, in an attic or a basement of the shul. Also, we have to realize that the thought was uh, in their mind that this exile is temporary. You know, they were thrown out of Bologna in 1569. They were already back in the 1580s. So there were reasons to think so. It so happens that when they were ejected in the 1590s, it was for 300 years. But who knew? And when they left, so Christian bookbinders would uh, descend on the shawls, you know, vultures at a feast. And there are records. You have a record from the pogrom in Germany, in Frankfurt, in the 17th century, which explicitly mentions that Hebrew books were stolen by Christians and sold to the bookbinders of the city. They've even found bills of sale for these books. So in Italy, they have found 350 sheets of the Babylonian Talmud, parts of the uh, um, Talmud Yerushalmi, the Mishnah, Tesefta, all in book bindings. Whereas fragments in Austria and Germany tend to be Ashkenazi, and the ones from Spain and Portugal are Svardi. In Italy, it's sort of a third Italian, a third Ashkenaz, and a third Svardi, because there were waves of immigration from other European countries, and there were multiple Kahillas existing in towns in Italy side by side. Why haven't I heard of them? In one sentence, because you only find a few sheets of each safer. Whole sheets, admittedly, as we said, but only a few in each binding or set of archives. They, they tore apart the book. They sold it as scrap parchment. So it ended up all over the city and, and People bought a few pages here and there, whatever they needed. Yeah, but even then, I mean, they should be in every archive. Why don't we reconstruct them? I mean, it's, such, it's got such significance. No, because they were bought often by private wealthy families who had registers which they wrapped with sheets of the Talmud for their quote-unquote very important accounts, you know, their expenses of wine for the year. But they didn't need to deposit these in a public archive. So in the 16th, 17th century, when the year ended, they probably burnt their register of expenses in the fireplace. And that, tragically, is where hundreds of sheets of Svarim ended up, probably 95% of the material. And probably no more than the 5% is saved because the public institutions or church institutions had to deposit compiled registers in a public archive. So although it's very sad to imagine, this is likely what happened. So all these are hand copies. They're precious. And they're used for the equivalent of, um, you know, wrapping fish, which, by the way, is exactly what happened in Poland after World War II. Nevertheless, 
There are some important finds, fragmentary ones, unpublished pieces of biblical commentaries. There's a few pages of Rabbeinu Hananel on Gittin, which doesn't exist anywhere else. And in Pizarro, the only recomposition of an entire manuscript, 82 sheets, it's a French machzar, which dates back to the 12th century, has a commentary written by, well, probably a Talmud of Yosef ben of Paris. And it's a rare document in that French Jews, once they were expelled from France, adopted the nusach of the countries they went to live in. And this machzar even contains a piot by Rabbeinu Tam, which is unknown. Um, so that's uh, generally in Italy, but there are these types of archives all over Europe. In Germany, we now know that the Rokeach, Rabbi of Worms, wrote a commentary on Tehillim, of which two pages at Oxford are the only remnant to date. And interestingly, as a result, we know that his division of Tehillim is different than the one we have today. Uh, he writes about the famous chapter in Tehillim, Hashem you know, the English, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So he writes in his commentary for that chapter that whoever observes the Torah, which was written using the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, will receive the blessings written in this psalm, Psalm 22, except according to the way we divide it, it's Tehillim 23. Chof Gimel. So he's missing one. Well, no, because the chapter division of the Book of Tehillim was not completely uniform in earlier times. The Talmud Yerushalmi talks about 147 instead of what we normally look at as 150. The Yalkut Shimoni, which is a medrash composed in Germany in the late 13th century, also divides Tehillim into 140 chapters, at least in the Salonika early edition in 1521, because the Elkutrimoni combines Tehillim 1 and 2 into a single unit, and it's possible that the Rekeach combined 9 and 10 as a unit, as we find in another manuscript in uh, 1299, also from Germany, which is currently in Vienna. So he writes something in a way that nowadays we don't quite follow, but at the time it was perfectly correct. And the sheer number of places in Germany which may still hold new unknown fragments is huge. There are 500 libraries with collections. There are a thousand archives with files from the 15th to 17th centuries which might be wrapped in Hebrew manuscripts. Wow. So we could be doing part five of the Geniza in a couple of years' time. Yes, <laughs> yes, I guess that's possible. So, so things are still being discovered. Absolutely, and... yes. Yeah, there's wow. a book that just came out on the Italian Geniza. It was a fortune, it's 170 euro, the book, but uh, it literally came out about a month ago. You can imagine with the amount of museums around the world and also the architecture going on, there has to be architecture the digging in the old sites right the archives yes, archives, yeah. Yeah. yes. it's the it must be enormous the yep. amount of manuscripts still out there okay i think that brings our Kinesis series to an end yes. thank you very much do we know what our next series is it will be about a certain year in jewish history which was a watershed and changes in the jewish world which last to this day when you say a certain year are you being deliberately uh, vague 
Yes. What would be the fun <laughs> in telling you? Uh, but it's a round number of years ago. That much I'm prepared to say. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. As usual, any podcasts or feedback, please send to podcasts at jlee.org.uk. And of course, the first 20, as Robbie Hirsch mentioned before, will have an exclusive tour. Yeah, am I right for saying that? An yes. exclusive tour of the Geniza. There has been quite a bit of demand for it. People have been asking, is there any way to see it? And we will figure out a date. Obviously, the international travellers will need a bit more time to book their tickets. July, I would think, is likely. And as I said, it has to be a weekday. Right. So thank you very much. And as usual, make sure to follow and subscribe so that you don't miss another episode. Thank you. Thank you.